I'm Jennifer Torrance, and this is Talking Experiments from Borealis, a festival for experimental music. Today I'm in the studio with the composer Catherine Lamb, who is calling in from Berlin to talk about some of the motivations, passions, and frustrations that drive her artistic practice. In her compositional work, Kat explores what she describes as the interaction of tone, and her music is remarkable in her use of alternative tuning systems, or as she prefers to call it, rational intonation. Simply put, Rational intonation is a way of relating sounds to each other, away from the notes and scales we might be familiar with from the piano keyboard of Western classical music. It's a sort of music making that can look and sound complicated when discussed. It relates to maths and physics. But as Kat explains, at its heart, it's a way of freeing musicians from the 12-note scale of our childhood piano lessons and hearing the sounds and music that exists within the gaps. Through these intonation systems that exist outside, between, or beyond standard tuning systems, Kat is able to explore a world of nuances that exists in the relationships between instruments, people, and of course, tones. In this episode of Talking Experiments, Kat and I chat about her desire to create pieces that evoke a sense of collective intensity among musicians, about how, as a young composer, she found a sense of belonging through rational intonation, and about how she conceptualizes listening and the perception of sound, and in particular, the idea of sound as multi-dimensional shapes. Kat also gives us a sneak peek into her new work, Interspatia, which will premiere at the 2022 edition of Borealis in Bergen, Norway, and then two days later at Märzmusik in Berlin, Germany. For me, the biggest thing about music is the connectivity between humans and uh, how we relate to each other. And even though I'm working with... um, like, I, you know, I, I write scores and these things, and I'm working with really, really particular sound relationships that, that we're going for when, when humans are sounding them together. I guess the connectivity is, is that I'm interested in the act of um, the humans together, balancing together, trying to create like a shape or, or, or trying to create a kind of perceptual zone that the collective in that moment can comprehend. And even if the um, individuals maybe are perceiving that shape differently, um, I'm interested in what happens when there's this collective intensity of people trying to achieve a certain kind of shape, if that makes sense. I had brought an article from Scientific American that I was going to project uh, of a study that was made by Norley uh, where people uh, experienced different shapes. Now, I had always done this when I began composing, but I, and I had many strange names for these effects. So when I finally found the 
some articles, they were very helpful to me because um, I knew that I was not listening too long, that, that actually there was fundamental research done, that people hear spirals, they hear curves, they hear various shapes. And this is very um, simple in, in the, the book of... Rose. Composer Marianne Amache speaking at the Ars Electronica conference in Linz, Austria in 1989 about the shapes she hears when different tones interact. An inspiration to Kat alongside her teacher James Tenney, who characterized these cumulative sonic events as clang. I asked her to say more about this idea of hearing shapes. We have to be careful how we talk about shape because, of course, everyone has their own synesthetic um, response to things. But I think what she's talking about is that there is um, some research that, that suggests that we experience shapes via sound, but it's like a, like a sound shape. But maybe, I mean, maybe some people would just simply call it timbre, you know, mm. or or have different names for it, or like a, maybe in Indian music you would call it like a rasa or something. Like maybe it's even just a feeling, but but it's like um, there is a distinct shape that I think is directly linked to also to our internal biology. I mean, this is I often refer to the spiral just because it's so banal, it's so elemental mm. <laughs> to the human um, makeup. But then so there's that, and then okay, the how Tenny talks about clang is more um, how we perceive sound as one thing, how we experience it. And, and I think it is both how he talks about it is also from a physical, biological place, but that is certainly about perception as well. Because when he breaks down these four categories of form and he first talks about the elements, which is more something that you can pick apart as one entity. And then when that element becomes a clang or a shape, it could be that the element is intermixing from the past to the present. Um, and it could be anything, like you could even call it a melody or, or a noise or, or something that we can identify that happened before and it's m mixing with what's happening now. Or it's just a complex timbre, like a tom-tom, like, mm. or a gong, that has a complex spectra and um, with many elements within. Um, but we still perceive it as one thing or one shape. And so I think that this is a big, between those two perceivers, uh, Marianne Almache and Tenny, who are talking in different ways about a similar thing, I, I think that this is a big part of what I'm interested in when musicians get together. And so when, they're, when they try to sound one tone against another tone, for instance, that then creates and expands into larger shapes. It's so beautiful when you talked about that you're, uh, you're interested in this, the, creating these shapes or, or making a situation where musicians are making these these shapes as a collective and then you talk about that there's the intensity that comes from the attempt to make these shapes and I remember when I got to work with you uh, recording with Ensemble Neon uh, on your piece Parallax Forma that I got to experience this this feeling of intensity where the intonation is somehow alternative to 
what we're used to when we hear a piano, and whether it's uh, just intonation or microtonality or other ways of talking about intonation. I'm sure you have your own way of thinking of it or speaking about it. But in this attempt to to make that shape, there was such an in, insane listening in the room. And I was struck when I was watching you listen because you would listen to the musicians, which were some winds and some strings, guitar, and two singers, and then I was on wine glasses, and you would listen and wait and wait and wait, and we would just play this one tone each, and then you would smile suddenly, because then we had apparently made the shape. But I had to say <laughs> that for me, I I really couldn't hear the difference, um, because my listening is <laughs> certainly not as developed as yours. Um, but it didn't really matter, because it was the intensity of the attempt and the intensity of the listening that, for me, created some kind of presence or collectivity. But I guess one question I do have for you is, how or is it possible to practice listening for these shapes? Absolutely, yeah. And I feel like that's the big part of it. Um, and I think, I mean, you're right. And I think um, that I think the first step is just simply the intensity and and like how and that was a really beautiful experience with that group because everyone was so present and there together and that that makes a huge difference i mean if you don't have that you you can't um i mean we even know that in other musical situations with other kinds of materials or other uh their conceptual spaces but um that we need that intensity but yeah it's a particular kind of intensity that focuses away from fundamental sound, away from fundamental pitch. So it, you have to sort of divorce yourself from pitch space thinking and go directly to interaction of tone, which is, that's a term I like to use. It's based off of um, the Joseph Albers interaction of color that he made, but I, I like this interaction of tone that's, um, I mean, it's a metaphor. It doesn't, sound doesn't function like color functions, but when you put a tone next to another tone, it interacts. It doesn't just, it's not just a pitch with a pitch. And so when you have people in a room listening into the tones, or it, I guess you could say if if two people are looking at a painting together and then they both start to talk about the the kind of halos on the sides that they're seeing of when, like, the red and yellow meet together or something like this, or um, maybe it's a similar kind of act where um, it's almost like um, even if the two people are perceiving it in different ways, because there's different, there's always, there's an infinite amount of things to pay attention to, but there are distinct elements that kind of contour the shape. Like, I mean, you can have like the combination tones, the difference tones, the summation tones, the, which are the summation tones sometimes are less explicit. And then you have the common partials. And depending on your instruments and the, the instrument's timbres and your position to your instrument also, like if you're a wind instrument, it's going to resonate in your cavity or in your body differently than if you're playing a string instrument. And sorry to interrupt, but all of these difference tones and summation tones, these are uh, phenomena that you feel physically or that are, are, is it something that is extremely concrete when you're listening? Um, it depends on the the instruments, I think, because, so, okay, as a string player, I feel like when, when I'm bowing 
across a string. It's uh, lifting out a pretty complex uh, spectra um, that goes up rather high. I mean, depending on if I, I mean, if there's a mute there, of course, then it sh shapes the shapes the spectra, and then sending out like in a way this kind of pseudo saw wave like thing like a fan almost like if it's sent out into the room like a fan and it's meeting with another string instrument they kind of collect together those two fans and then at bolder points along the the spectra are alignments and so they will meet together and enforce or highlight certain parts of the the two shapes coming together and emerging to create a different shape hmm. so there's that and then if you have something like, okay, two clarinets. And let's just say that their third and fifth partials are very, very prominent. And, maybe, and, and depending on the player, they might have slightly different emphasis. So how does that then point towards the sound or like voices when, we're, when there's certain formants that are very clear over others? Hmm. There's an intensity in the individual sound coming into the collective sound. And then when it meets the collective that's where it interacts and then creates um, a distinct other shape that is the collective shape. Hmm. Yeah. I read a, an interview that you did on soundamerican.org where you talked about that you had read the German physicist Hemholtz and then you had, I think you said, your brain altered <laughs> and you gained a new kind of filter in your brain through which you could hear sound, and that everything changed after that. And I would love to know exactly what page in Hemholtz <laughs> that was, so that I could have your filters. I think it's so beautiful to to hear how physical and how spatial you perceive sounds. Uh, I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I wish I knew that. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was a combination of things, but yeah. That act of deciding to to name, I think it was that 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 change in um, going from being really interested in timbre and what happens and and kind of having an intuitive response and also coming from studying a little bit of Indian music and then yeah when James Tenney was saying hey here are some tools where you can actually name what's happening and talk about it in very scientific terms mm. that. I think there was something in the act of actually taking a moment to just actually dissect what's going on that then opened up things for me. Um, and it, like suddenly I was hearing airplanes really differently in the sky. Right. I guess there's a lot of philosophers have written about how naming things can increase our ability to perceive. So that seems to make a lot of sense with many smart people. I've just turned the conversation, but not so much actually, because my next question is simply if you could talk about a significant turning point in your compositional practice. Yeah. Well, there's a few, I guess. I mean, the first one was when I was 20 and I went to India to study music and I realized that there was way more than I could ever comprehend <laughs> than what I had learned before. And, and then I started to really just think philosophically and conceptually about music in a really different way. And then coming back to the U.S. and, and then going to study with 
James Tenney and Michael Pizarro at the same time. And that, I mean, and what I was just describing with the, the kind of different perceptual awareness that was triggered around that point of kind of diving into the rational intonation world. So that definitely, that, that changed, that was a, the, probably the largest shift because um, up to that point, I was mostly composing on the piano. And also, no, I wasn't composing for anyone else because I I didn't have the luxury of people wanting to play my music until I until that point when I was around twenty one, twenty two, twenty three, and then I started to yeah make friends with other composers and performers, and we started you know we were playing each other's music, and that really changed things. And then uh, in combination with the rational intonation practice, I kind of really moved away from the piano altogether. Can you, sorry Anne, to pull you back, just mm-hmm. to explain a bit of more about what you mean by rational. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the term I like to use to describe when, when we talk about intonation in general, just or just intonation, because just intonation, I feel like it's um, too specific or not specific enough because I feel like um, it's either referring to a certain kind of consonance that has historical weight. And um, I like the term rational intonation because it goes directly to the numbers themselves and their relationships. Um, And so you can, and it's also, it suggests a kind of infinite research. Hmm. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's mathematical. And are you also composing with mathematical formulas or is there a notebook full of equations before you are working on on actual staff with with notes on paper yeah you know what the it's it's interesting because um i think sometimes and i talk with musicians sometimes people are really scared of of going and learning about i'm just going to say rational intonation because of they they fear it's a lot of math hmm. but my my experience, because I'm not a high mathematician at all, um, I'm, I mean, and the way I'm working is really basic math. It's arithmetic. It's, I mean, it's adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing. Mm-hmm. The only complicated element is when you have to relate it somehow to a tempered system and you have to show its deviation from a tempered system. That's the only time it gets complicated. Or if, and if you're just talking about the intonation itself. Hmm. Because it's it's just basically you talk about the numbers instead of the alphabet. So if you think of the numbers as tones and how they interact together, rather than saying, okay, A to C or A to C sharp or, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, it makes a lot of it sense. A, yeah. So it's actually, for me, it's just a very, very direct link to tonality itself. And I for me, it's more that over the years, I gain more and more of uh, familiarity with the numbers as tonal relationships and tonal um, association. So now that when I see a number, I think of its relationship in the tonal space. Right. It kind of it goes back to what is a name and naming things. And instead of saying C, the name C, you give the number yeah. whatever it is, 510. I'm sure you know the numbers off the top of your head. Um, to a certain point. To the ones that I use, I know, but I'm <laughs> sure. I'm limited to that. <laughs> and those numbers are based on, on the waves, or how do these numbers work? Yeah, well, it depends on, okay, yeah, how you're referencing them. That's a good point. Because, yeah, we can talk about wavelength, we can talk about um, 
periodicity, or um, we can talk about partials, which is often how I'm when I'm working with a tonal palette. There's a lot of uh, pieces, recent pieces that have a thread to working with, in a way like one overtone series, but based off of a very low fundamental. So the lo- the the actual fundamental is more conceptual, but then what happens is the the upper partials that get pulled down into uh, a cognitive space or into a, a discernible space. So um, where we can actually hear it, you mean? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> An audible space. Yeah. So um, yeah, uh, and so in that sense, I can really like uh, one of my favorite uh, fundamentals to use is ten hertz for multiple reasons. It's the difference between sixty and fifty hertz, which are the two electrical cycles. So both of them easily fit into it and then it's also such a a basic number where I could say I could tell you okay we're going to start on the 30 second partial which is really just an octave of the fundamental and then you just add a zero and there's the frequency so Mm. you can pull yourself totally away from scent deviations and and or thinking about deviation from a tempered system like you can just remove yourself from that and think of um tonality in a different way you know uh, uh, you have to find your tone some way to start with if that makes sense that so it, it does start to make sense sorry to interrupt i just started to get a, a new question listening mm. to you and and that has to do with do you feel some kind of uh i think oppression maybe is certainly too strong a word uh, I, I can only guess but a sort of that you're stuck and that inside of more standard intonation, and that you get a sort of liberation by breaking out of these systems. It, as a queer person, I I immediately have this sort of queerness inside of here to break out of these normal normativity of of thinking about pitch. Is it something like that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really nice uh, way to put it. I I think that I mean, there must be that must be some part of it, or just feeling like. I mean, I think for me, it's just that I always felt so frustrated. Um, also, like as a teenager, where I felt like all my music teachers didn't understand, or, or just I felt like, okay, this this isn't this isn't describing. Like, I never related to harmonic theory in the way that I was supposed to, and um, I felt like there was always like um, these experts forcing me into the system that I didn't relate to. It didn't make sense to me inherently. Like it didn't resonate. Um, and even, even when I was playing the piano, like I would do these sort of, I remember doing these kind of arpeggiated patterns um, that, um, that, you know, like invoke the, the resonance. So even with that, it just didn't, I felt like the, the standard theoretical system, I, it wasn't, cognitively resonant with me Mm. and so I and I've often felt frustrated my my music teachers felt frustrated I remember um I guess I've told this a lot but when um I I specifically remember my viola teacher giving me these interval exercises to work on and I went home and I was working on them a lot and then I started to I think it was the early sensorial experience of these combinations of of really starting to realize and comprehend that there were differences and that that there were certain resonances happening 
and that if I would move my finger a little up or down and and I, I remember either I was really excited about this and I took it back to her and her response was really out of frustration like like I was tone deaf you know and and feeling like if she even told me that <laughs> later mm. that she thought I was tone deaf mm. and uh yeah and and yeah just feeling like this the weight of the system I mean it's yeah I, I like that you brought up um the the relationship of being queer because it's like why are we so forced into these systems our whole lives and and it's really important to stretch them and break and 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 yet that that's, that's that is kind of how I felt like finally when I was around people who understood <laughs> and had could explain in in very scientific terms no actually you you there is a reason why you had these sensorial experiences and it's fine <laughs> to to go there mm. you know absolutely oh thank you for sharing that's amazing and what horrible thing for a teacher to say but you are doing very interesting work because of it so maybe we should thank her <laughs> <laughs> uh, so i'll just shift gears again to your new work which you've called interspatia which will premiere at borealis in march 22 just in a couple of months and so i my first question is what can the audience expect when they come into the church in in Bergen in March? Yeah. <laughs> um well, a tuba trio with um four trombones. And the tuba trios in the center of the room. And the kind of thing I'm exploring is um, what kind of, and th this piece is actually um, way more of an exploration of explicit shape than I think in a lot of my other pieces. I really go there. I really go to, okay, how far can we really um, sound these shapes and really uh, identify them? So that the, the trio is um, working from the uh, very very basic and slowly slowly moving towards the complexity but the the shapes that they are always defining between the three of them are highlighted by the trombones um who are at first at the periphery of the room and so and over the course of the piece that the trombones move towards the center and the idea is that they sort of come from this peripheral space and ideally arrive at a collective space and hopefully i mean we'll see <laughs> that the, the seven of them can then um kind of fuse into this collective shape together whereas the beginning the 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 trio itself is more like they're the generators i'm thinking of it like that um mm -hmm. the generators of the total space where the trombones are um, finding their tones from because they're sounding combination tones and sometimes summation tones and and sometimes difference tones they sort of gravitate closer and closer into the into the center until they are one the idea is that they become one uh, one identifiable shape because it's one thing that I, i've been curious about this cognition of this uh biological spiral shape that we have you know that has also exists in the cochlea i mean a lot of, a lot of people talk about this it's nothing new mm. but um i'm i'm curious about the difference between like uh the series as 
the series that's inherent, like the overtone series, and as a sequential thing that fuses into one entity versus the the shapes that happen via um, sounding combinations together. And so just to distinguish, because if you have the trio that's sounding these um, these tonalities that are relating together, I believe they create shapes in a different way than if you are fused into one series. And maybe this is like, I guess some spectralists sometimes talk about the fusion of being in the overtone series. And that's a different kind of way of working than than trying to sound these relationships, like these clear relationships. But even though they are part of the series, because they um, you omit, you, you filter out certain parts of, of the spiral or, or of the series to get at these particular relationships, to get these certain kinds of resonances that are, yeah, if, if this makes sense. So it's kind of exploring these identities that then become one. Mm. And so when the, the the tuba trio microtub is in the middle, and then is it that the audience is then around them on all sides of the trio? And then the trombones are then walking through the audience across the, the course of the piece? Yeah, so there's, um, I guess the, the trombones will be in three different positions throughout the piece. They begin, so the... It's in a church, and I think that the yeah the way the 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 tuba trio is kind of front center, and then the there's these four um, four sides of the church that the that the trombones can actually enter from. We're not sure yet if they'll actually be on the other side of the the doorways <laughs> at first, or if they'll be just into the room or somewhere between. I'm just imagining as an as an audience member sitting there that the experience of these tones interacting and these identities that you are talking about and all of these different ways of hearing sounds, whether there's the summation or different tones that you're that you're talking about, will be so unique for every single audience member simply because of where they are in the room, how the surfaces of the walls are interacting with this person who is on the move towards the the tuba trio. I'll just give one last question here, uh, just to see what else you have been spending your time on um, in the last weeks or months. And that's just simply, if you could talk about one thing or, or two things that have been preoccupying your time outside of strictly your compositional practice. Yeah, um, well, the major thing, um, um, it had to take a little pause again because of the COVID numbers going up. But um, this fall, uh, also there's this, um, I guess, two two groups. But the one is the Harmonic Space Orchestra that um, in Berlin, it, it's a kind of um, collective of people where we, are working together on this research. And um, my ideal is that it would eventually expand into, yeah, a very large group. <laughs> but um, but anyway, the, the thing this fall that we did, which was really wonderful, was we met once a week um, and without, without any kind of repertoire, um, without any kind of um, compositional intention other than uh, experiments, 
where um, we would just say, okay, this week we're going to focus on this. This week we're going to only play Pythagorean. This week we're going to, you know, like we just, um, yeah, we'll do 11 limit this week or, or, or it, it had, you know, different or, or one, yeah, one week was um, uh, Judith Haman brought her uh, work that she did with Charles Curtis, like in terms of just how do you physically maintain a unison sound together, which is actually probably the most difficult thing to do. Like you think, oh, these, all these complicated numbers, uh, relationships are so hard, but actually the one-to-one is the most challenging because it, it has so much information and it, it is so, um, tied to your physical being. (laughs) So like, yeah. and, And so each week we had like Sometimes we'd have one person kind of lead a little exercise or, or sometimes we would just, yeah, just experiment. So, and this is something that I really want to continue this, this kind of development, because I feel like with my practice for a long time, it's been a kind of solo endeavor. And I feel like this is true for most people I know working with intonation practices. And uh, so it's such a different thing when you are, in a practice situation with other people. And I know this sounds very basic to say this, but it's true. I mean, to practice playing on one kind of instrument against a different kind of instrument, a trombone versus a viola versus a a flute versus clarinet versus, it's really, um, to reference earlier, they create different shapes and you have to relearn the most basic relationships together as a collective Mm. and it's and 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 the other thing we we've been describing our perceptions we've been making diary entries about it and um this is like the the thing i'm most excited about right now is how to create a kind of community and and also gather the community together so the other thing i'm doing is these singing sessions with um people here that are also it kind of crosses between actual singers and people that are just interested in or have, have practiced themselves on different instruments with rational intonation and we just try to meet together and sing I call it singing by numbers which is um, what my friend Laura Steenberg and I started in Los Angeles many years ago but now I feel like it's um, I feel like maybe just because time has passed and I have a new relationship to the numbers <laughs> and then there's this amazing pool of people here that uh, and it keeps growing that um yeah it i feel like there's a very special thing that happens when when we're singing together mm. that is different than playing our individual instruments because you i mean i guess unless you are a very very highly trained singer you lose your um predictable bearing and you're just working with the voice directly so we can really get to more specific things more um, quickly. It's beautiful. I just started reading this uh, choreographer's handbook by Jonathan Burroughs, and it starts out with the sentence something like, let's just start with the assumption that you know how to dance. Training only sometimes is a bonus. And I <laughs> and I really love this so much in that uh, I can also understand with the use of the voice that training here only sometimes is a bonus Um, because if I can imagine myself as a percussionist going into this collective experience with you and those around you 
there's a, a kind of vulnerability that is the performance vulnerability of not having as much control. And there's also the vulnerability that there is nothing in front of my body as there normally is. It's just the voice. And that that could probably create the kind of collective intensity that you're looking for in your practice. Uh, so I'm just happy to hear that you found that space there in Berlin or those two spaces. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's just starting. I feel like I, I can feel it um, opening. It's, it's really... Yeah, it's, it's exciting. Composer Catherine Lem talking to me from Berlin as she prepares for the premiere of her work Interspatia for Marianne Amache at Borealis on 18th March in Bergen, Norway, and then on the 20th of March at Märzmusik in Berlin, Germany. And you can find more details of all the Borealis 2022 projects at borealisfestival.no. Check out the other episodes of Talking Experiments to hear more about our 2022 festival. And make sure to spread the word and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Experiments was presented by me, Jennifer Torrance, for Borealis. <laughs>